This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. It's time for this week's Economy Matters with Hilmari Schultz. This week, Hilmari, you're looking at migration. Why are you concerned about the growing number of Kiwis fleeing overseas? Um, Hi, John. Nice to see you. Um, Yes, I do think it is a great concern. Um, If you look at the numbers that was released by Stats New Zealand, uh, we are now seeing the highest level of Kiwis leaving New Zealand for the last 10 years. Um, and these numbers just keep on growing and growing. What are the drivers? I think the main drivers, as you know, um, the majority of people leaving, Kiwis leaving are between 20 and 30. And if you ask, and I think in our circle of friends, we all have young people um, that are moving to Australia or to Europe or Asia. The biggest things are, I think the first is the opportunities in terms of diversity of jobs, The second is definitely salaries. They can earn a lot more. And I think the third is the cost of living in New Zealand, where um, a lot of young Kiwis cannot afford to buy a house. Um, They can actually not afford to buy daily items. Um, So they are looking overseas to see where they can get better opportunities and where they can actually get better salaries to be able to afford to buy a house and groceries and a car. Why can't we afford to lose these people then? I think the majority we do, we are a nation of migrants, so we are dependent on migrants. But I also think we have to look after our homegrown talent. It is so vital that we have Kiwis that are able to work and live and play in New Zealand. There's the traditional OE. But what we do see is that the traditional OE now gets extended and it gets to five years and 10 years and then these Kiwis don't come back. So an OE is normal and I guess since COVID we've seen the taps turn back on the borders and we've seen a huge wave of migrants come into the country and we're seeing those constant gains. Is it a case that those migrants can fill the gap of Kiwis leaving? They do and and the thing is um, There's a difference between attracting migrants, it's controlled by policy, and we can control who we bring in. But um, Kiwis leaving New Zealand is not controlled by policy. These are decisions that are made. So it is about the makeup of our workforce and what people do. Although migrants can fill some of these gaps, you always want uh, your homegrown talent um, to feel that they have a space and a place in their home country. So they may go overseas, do their OE for a certain amount of time, but it's making sure they come back in a way. Oh, yes. We have to definitely make sure that they come back um, and that after the experience overseas, that there are great opportunities for them to have diversity of jobs, to be able to afford a house and a car and to start a family in New Zealand. Who's responsible for bringing them back? Is it government policy? Um, Again, I think this is a combination of government policy, but also how we look at our economic development. And I've said this quite a few 
I always say this, is it's important that we create an environment that has good quality jobs so that we attract businesses and we attract talent um, that are able to create these good quality jobs. So I think it's a combination of the government, but also the private sector to make sure that we have attractive jobs for young people to come back to. An added complication you've noted in your piece is we've got an ageing population, our working age population is getting older. Um, yes, it, it is It is a stark if you look at it. So currently, it's called the dependency ratio. So normally you would look at your working age population, which is from 15 to 65, as a share of you know your kids and then people that retire. Now, and if you look at the last, say from the 1960s, uh, about 70% of our population were working age, so we looked after young people and old people. Currently, around about 54% of our population are working age. So these are people that support our tax base. So about half the population is working age, the other half are either young or people that are retired. And as we know, there has been quite a shift in the last 40 to 50 years for not having so many young people, but actually people that are retiring and not in the workforce anymore. Mm. So COVID has exacerbated this, and I guess with the borders open as well, is the time now to start bringing these young people back? Yes, um, we have to, and we're competing, you know, we're competing with our neighbours across the ditch. We are competing with Canada. We are competing with Europe. Um, and it's more than just a lifestyle that we have to sell. Um, we have to sell opportunity and diversity and a decent salary um, for these young people to, to come and live in New Zealand. And Australia is going hard on bringing Kiwis to their country, aren't they? Man, they are going hard. I don't know, you know, I, I, every morning when I drive to work, um, the uh, Victorian government advertises aggressively for um, for our teachers to move to Victoria for great lifestyle. Um, they even including, you know, a 10,000 Australian dollar relocation fee and bonuses. Um, so we are competing um, with other OECD countries for our young talent and even for the for the very necessity that we need in this country, like teachers, nurses, doctors. Hill Murray Schultz, thanks for your time. Thanks, Jono. Labour's flagship Kiwi Bill policy will not be long for this world come October. Maria Slade predicts in this week's Shoe Shine. Maria, does anyone even talk about Kiwi Build anymore? I still get the odd email, but it's only every few months that there's a new development. Yes, a couple of the commentators I spoke to regarding this piece were like, what? What are you talking about this for? <laughs> uh, yeah, it certainly hasn't had a lot of attention in yep. recent times. Even the Labour government doesn't talk about it all that much. The only ones who seem to market are the National Party, who celebrate its birthday every year just to point out its failings. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's certainly been a very troubled policy. Uh, and I started looking into it just because we had heard about people renting out their Kiwi build homes. And so I decided to look into it to see if this is much of an issue. Uh, Kainga Ora, who administers the scheme, says it's not. There's only been about five cases of people renting out their homes when they're not supposed to. But the thing is, uh, how would they really know? Because all they do is apparently peruse the property listings to see if anyone's <laughs> advertised right. one. Okay. And yeah. you're supposed to get penalised if you do, but that doesn't seem to happen. So, look, the real question is, um, you know, why would you even bother policing a scheme that has just been so unsuccessful? Has there been any elements of it that have been successful or any positive aspects to it, I guess? Well, they only built 1,800 homes out of the 100,000 that they promised, so right. that's 1.8%. Yeah. Uh, so on that factor alone, it, it's been a dismal failure. But there's other aspects to it too that haven't worked. It just it doesn't address the housing affordability issue. Um, the cap for a three-bedroom Kiwi-built home in Auckland is uh, 860000 which is way beyond the means of, of a low-income family. And also, if you are the first buyer and you then sell the property for a profit, you, you get that windfall. There's nothing to stop you um, gaining that. So the taxpayer is subsidising your capital gain. And so people are saying, look, it would be much better if that money went into providing more social housing rather than subsidising middle class people onto the property ladder. Uh, so, yeah, no, it, it just on all fronts, everyone from different sides of the political spectrum seems to agree that it just hasn't really done the job that they wanted it to do. Is part of this just a, a timing thing, I guess? You know, we've been consenting and building a lot of homes anyway over the last few years, maybe until recently, but... Yes, well, the developers point out that KiwiBuild actually has its place, mm. particularly in a downturn like this. When things were booming, uh, they couldn't be bothered with KiwiBuild because it took too long to get the applications through for a start. Apparently it took about four months. And houses were selling like hotcakes anyway, so why would they bother? But now that they're at the mercy of the banks, who are completely risk-averse and won't lend on anything, Thing that isn't finished or is completely pre-sold, which is impossible in this market, uh, the Kiwi build underwrite can kind of keep things moving. Mm. And that's what didn't happen after the global financial crisis and why building consents su- sank to such a terrible all-time low. And so what the commentators are saying is um, the one thing that may come out of Kiwi build is the government is slowly learning that what you have to do is uh, address the underlying uh, problems with supply and, and the, the government does does have a, a role there, which is which they didn't take after the GFC. Things like finding ways to um, fund infrastructure, that's a big problem. But they have started to do that. Uh, there was a law passed in 2020 allowing councils to set up special purpose vehicles that are off their balance sheet to raise funds and recoup that from the homeowners over sort of a 50-year period or whatever. So there's mechanisms like that. They have, um, you know, relax the planning rules in many respects. In Auckland now, two-thirds of the, the homes consented are apartments or units, and rents in Auckland are actually now less than they are in Wellington, believe it or not. So, you know, that supply side is starting mm. to work, and, you know, what the commentators are saying is, you, you know, that's where you need to put your focus. Are there other kinds of structures or overseas examples that we can look to as well to try and help this fix this? Well, everyone's got their view, of course. Of course um, yeah. You know, the developers say one thing they could do if, if there was some kind of government mechanism for support in the troughs that kind of keeps them going so that they are not at the mercy of the banks, uh, that would help. And worst case scenario, the state would end up owning homes they, all, they want anyway. 
the social housing providers or the community housing groups say there are structures in Europe which many people um, you know, are, are housed under whereby the land ownership and the housing ownership are separated and it's it's a collective kind of setup uh, that dominates in a lot of cities over there and we're way behind the times on that but our legal and financial structures just don't easily allow for it and the current crop of politicians don't seem to have any ideas um, about that. So, you know... Uh, my prediction is uh, whichever party gets into power come October, the Nats are going to get rid of Kiwi Build. The Labour government's gone really quiet on it, and I think they would just quietly sideline the brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the real question is what they put in its place. Maria, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Janine Granger is co-founder and CEO of New Zealand cryptocurrency trading platform Easy Crypto. She started the company with her brother Alan Granger in 2017 and she joins me now. Oh, welcome. Hi Fiona, thanks for having me on. So a lot, a lot has changed since we last interviewed you for the Entrepreneur Series, which I think was back in 2019. So one of your most recent achievements has been winning the most inspiring individual at the High Tech Awards um, and being the only Kiwi named on the final top woman in Web3 Changemakers 2023 list. What does that sort of recognition mean for you? I have to say it's a little bit surreal, um, but you know, as you said, it's been a long time since I was here last, and um, it's been a huge journey building Easy Crypto and also you know building myself and my skills and confidence as a as an entrepreneur and as a CEO. Um, yeah, it's been a really long journey, and it's great to have that um, I guess catalyst to look back and reflect and see how far the business and I have come, and it's a really proud moment. Who inspires you? So many people. I actually was writing a bit of a blog post about this today. Because um, one of the things that I've really recognised in my journey is that I've had so many people that inspire me in little ways as well as big ways, and many of them would never know it. And sort of I talked in my speech at the High Tech Awards around how we all have such an ability and influence on others in terms of how we can yeah, influence and inspire. And you might not always know, but if you're sort of you know living your values and living um, a way that can encourage other people, that's really powerful. Um, a few of the people that sort of come to mind, one of them is Naya Merrick. She's a founder of the New Zealand's first um, female-led deep tech VC fund. Um, really honoured to have her on the board of Easy Crypto, but she's got an incredible backstory, very smart and um, very ambitious woman with, yeah, Great, great accolades behind her, and I'm sure great things ahead as well. Um, you've faced some challenging times with the crypto market uh, <laughs> of late. How, how has that impacted your business? Yeah, so we we tend to trade most on volatility. So when the markets are flat and things are a bit boring, you know, we're just chugging along. But when there's a lot of up and down activity, big market swings is when we see a lot of activity from our customer base. So over the last year or two, while the markets overall have been a lot lower than they were, say, in 2017, 2018, um, and even as recently as 2021, there have still been a lot of very big shocks, very big catalysts that have perhaps, you know, driven more activity. And it's never a dull day in crypto. (laughs) Uh, But the business is still going well? Yeah, business is going strong and we're um, working on some really great new products at the moment to diversify out of just the on and off ramp, sort of the basic crypto trading and into products that, um, one of which I hope will have really great impact for NZ Inc and we'll be able to talk about that in a few months and another one that's a product we're wanting to take globally. So a lot of really exciting build going on at the moment. So the Reserve Bank has come out and said that uh, there's no need for regulation of crypto at this stage, but there's a need for vigilance. What's your take on the need for regulation? So one of the things we're really lucky with in New Zealand is that we have quite a lot of principles-based regulations, so not prescriptive regulation that says crypto is or isn't regulated, but regulation that looks more at the intent or the activity and says what types of things should be regulated. So that's been really good, and for Easy Crypto, we've been 
regulated for things like anti-money laundering, fair trading, that kind of stuff since day one. And that's really positive because not all of the countries that we operate in work that way. Some regulations we're excluded from, which, you know, doesn't make sense. So that sort of principles base sets us in really good stead. Um, I do agree with the Reserve Bank, though. There is, you know, a need for vigilance. And I think it would be good for regulators to be keeping a watching brief on the space and to be working together in a coordinated way to look at what regulation might be needed in the future. It's a very fast moving space and being able to try to react um, as proactively or reactive, closely reactively as possible. But again, with that principles based approach, because a prescriptive approach and something that moves as fast as crypto will really just get us tied up in knots. If you were regulated, who, who do you think should oversee it? So there's a few areas, one of them on anti-money laundering, which is one of the big areas of regulation for us. We're currently regulated or supervised by the DIA, and DIA sort of have this catch-all bucket that they get everyone that doesn't fit under the bank or the financial sector. Probably what we do looks and feels a bit more like a financial product, so likely I think in the future we might come under the FMA's purview, and I think we'd probably be a better fit there. Where do you think things are going with crypto? What's your take on, on where things will head from here? My view when I look at this is to look broader than just crypto, but more at the trend of digitization of assets. And I am a very, very big believer that the future sort of 5, 10, 20 years will see a huge increase in how many assets are digitized. Things like shares, house titles, um, all sorts of different ways that you can exchange value in the real world um, will become either tokenized or fully digitized. So that's where I'm sort of focusing is how do we make that transition into a world of digital assets easy for people, but also very safe. We're seeing a huge increase in scams and phishing attempts and, you know, a lot of media articles at the moment around false tomb deposits and all sorts of ways that people can lose their life savings. And we have a real ability in the digital asset space to protect and detect that sort of fraud. Do you still think there's a lot of suspicion around crypto, though? Unfortunately, yes. I think it's still such an unknown and it still hasn't really become mainstream. And a lot of people, they look at crypto and sort of just think of a negative headlines. Um, But again, you know, I'm looking past crypto, you know, past Bitcoin, past Ethereum and into what does a digitised asset world look like and how will we all be engaging with it? And I think once we get to that point, hopefully some of that stigma might have fallen away. Um, you've raised a convertible note bridging round for Easy Crypto. So how much and why did you why did you raise it? So we did our Series A in 2021 and um, timed that well around October 2021. Don't look at the tech stock graph since. Um, and then once we'd done that, we sort of started down the path of, you know, quite an aggressive growth strategy, as you often do after a raise, and thought that given the market timing and where it looked like things might be heading, it might be good to do a top up. So we did that in early 2022. We've now got a really solid runway and, as I mentioned before, a couple of new products that we're building that will hopefully um, extend our, you know, diversify us into new markets and new revenue streams. So your team will work remotely. How hard or easy do you find um, that to manage? So we've been a remote team from day one, and I think that's been a really important part of us building a really good remote culture. So one of the things, no, actually the thing I'm most proud about in my, um, you know, business career so far is that my team is highly engaged. We have sort of 95% of people say that they enjoy the work they do and they're proud to work at Easy Crypto, and that's a figure that stayed pretty consistent over the massive ups and downs we've seen over the last few years. And that's for a company that's fully remote, sitting across multiple time zones, cultures, countries. So it is something that I think is really um, impressive and I'm really proud of it. And being a remote from day one business has helped with that because we've built our systems for remote company, not for a company that's hybrid or you know started in person and then had to try to tack on technology. It's been yeah, very intentional from the beginning. You had to lay some staff off um, at the end of last year. What personal toll did that take on you? Um, Yeah, that was a huge learning for me personally and not something I ever want to have to go through again. I think anyone who's been through that can probably um, identify that it's not a position you ever want to be in and it's not a position you want to be putting your staff in. So that was a really challenging time for the business and for me.
Um, what's it like working with your brother? <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, I think a lot of people are surprised that, you know, family relationships could withstand this, but uh, we've been really lucky in that he's got a sort of set of skills that is completely different from mine. We don't have a lot of overlap, but we really complement each other well. So everything he's good at, I cannot do. And everything that he doesn't want to touch with a barge pole, I'm happy to pick up. So it's a great relationship and it's worked really well over the last six or so years. So you left school at 15 to work in a cafe. Um, Do you think that lack of a formal education has affected your ability to be a CEO or do you think it's helped? Well, I did go back to uni in my 20s, so I guess I've cheated a little bit, but I think it's helped. I mean, for me, a lot of what I've learnt through my career and even from working in a cafe, from after that I worked at a travel agency, I picked up a whole lot of different skills and a lot of them also the softer skills, which are so, I think they're becoming more recognised, but historically they've been really underrated. But being a CEO, the soft skills are everything. It's not book knowledge, it's how you relate to people, how you lead, how you strategize, and ultimately how you bring an entire team together to deliver on that strategy. If you were starting your business again now, what would you do differently? (laughs) That is a very good question. Um, There's so many things I've learned along the way and a lot of them, you know, I I went down a lot of dead ends and a lot of, um, you know, sort of rabbit holes, I guess, and probably being more strategic about where we invest our time and resources and being really focused. And focus is a lesson that I feel like I keep learning over and over again to be very focused and to limit the amount of things you're trying to do because it's such a temptation to do everything. But the less you focus on, you know, or sorry, the tighter your focus is, the more you'll achieve. And just finally, um, who do you turn to for, um, you know, mentors or, or business support? I mean, because it can be lonely as a CEO, even even when you've got family in the business. Who, you know, who do you turn to? So I'm lucky to have a very good board who's very encouraging and um, also, you know, some amazing powerhouses on the board. Every single one of them is an incredible individual and together they're fantastic. But also I found YPO, the Young Presidents Organisation, which I joined last year, has been so good for me as a new CEO. There's a lot of very experienced people in there who are so willing to share their time and um, sort of thoughts and resources. And it's been a really um, a great organisation for me to learn from. All right. Well, thanks very much for your time, Janine Granger. Thank you, Fiona, and thanks, NBR. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. This week's Toil and Trouble Employment Law Slot deals with a recent case in which Customs was found to have not fairly applied Tikanga principles in its dismissal of an employee. Ruby Mills is an associate and employment law expert with Legal Vision in Christchurch, and she joins me now. Ruby, what happened in this case? Yeah, sure. That was um, an interesting uh, case where the employment court um, held an unvaccinated employee of customs um, was unfairly um, dismissed from their employment with customs. Um, and interestingly, some of the factors taken into account, um, amongst others, were uh, customs failure to adhere to tikanga principles um, in their employment relationship. Um, and this was relevant um, in the assessment of whether the dismissal was unjustifiable. Okay, so what exactly did they do that didn't respect tikanga? So they didn't adhere, so amongst other things, there was uh, a few flawed processes, um, but they uh, incorporated tikanga values and principles into their uh, employment relations with their employees. Um, So they failed to adhere to um, any of the principles that they um, incorporated. So they didn't follow a fair process with, when taking into account their, their choice to dismiss um, and because they'd actively introduced those, while it's not a requirement, um, they failed to adhere to any of them. 
um, they didn't address him um, address sorry the issues with him on an individualized basis. Um, they didn't engage with him that in a way that was mana enhancing is um, the way that I think the court the court said it. Um, they didn't involve him in a discussion um, about it directly. And um, when asked and approached, they didn't they didn't um, respond to his queries um, directly through his advocate, I believe. Um, I mean, I can see a problem coming up straight away when someone says you didn't engage with me in a manner enhancing way. I mean, that's a pretty nebulous concept. And I can see some employers getting very worried about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you be any more specific about what that actually means in this context? I think in this context, it's quite a unique case where generally the Employment Relations Act doesn't um, require an employer to um, adhere to tikanga principles. But I think the key for employers really is that this is a case where they have voluntarily incorporated um, the principles into their employment relations. So I think it was the three Ps with participation. Um, it's escaped me now, sorry, what they were. But um, basically they they chose to incorporate those values um, and then on that basis they had to adhere to them so I think it's for employers really what it means is if you choose to incorporate um, tikanga principles in your employment relations um, you do need to have um, you know reference to those when making decisions to you know with your employees um, so that, that's kind of the relevance other than that I guess yes employers does you know, seem to be a bit worrying, but I think it's the key here that if you introduce those um, voluntarily, uh, that's something that you do need to um, adhere to when making decisions. And of course, that would lead to employers saying, well, I'd rather not incorporate these these concepts, even though they might be useful in the employment context. That, that is a risk, but um, I think if, if it, like any good employer should, if you um, are, you know, following your obligations and, and obviously there's multiple obligations under the, the Act itself, um, it does hopefully fall into, um, you know, principles of good faith and things like that. Um, and acting in accordance with tikanga, and obviously um, I think in this case, obviously the, the court held the, um, their... Uh, obligations were heightened under the um, Public Service Act. So that kind of, while not directly um, touched on, this because it was a Public Service Act, um, it was relevant that, that the obligations are heightened under that as well. Um, and that specifically um, refers to um, Māori principles as well. Right. So what was the outcome of this case exactly? So the outcome was that uh, it went to the Employment Relations Authority first, and then it went to the Employment Court, um, and the Employment Court overturned the Employment Relations Authority's um, view, which was initially that um, it, the, the personal grievous for unjustified dismissal and disadvantage hadn't been um, established. The court um, overturned that and held that it was, um, and in the end, I guess, um, the employee, he was entitled to, I believe, $25,000 for hurt and humiliation, I think three months lost wages. Um, so in the end, um, yeah, the court held that he was unjustified, dismissed and disadvantaged in his employment. And and mostly that customs did um, not act as a fair and reasonable employer. Um, and again, t failing to take into account um, their voluntarily, um, you know, included um, principles of tikanga. Wow, that's a big one. Um, okay, we have touched on the sexual harassment, changes to sexual harassment uh, law, employment law, before, but can you just remind us why this is coming up now and, and what's going to happen? Where it's yeah, at? Sure. So, sure. so the employment um, 
Relations um, Extended Time for Personal Grievance for Sexual Harassment Amendment Act has now come into force. So basically what that means is it's now in force. So from, I believe, 13th of June, um, employers... It, they need to be aware of what this means for them. Basically, what this means is that any employment agreements going forward uh, from that date, so basically now, must include reference to the extended time frame. Um, so that's from 90 days to 12 months for an employee to raise a personal grievance um, due to sexual harassment in the workplace. Right. Why has this change been made? I think, um, and I, I recall your interview with Gerard, obviously um, it has been spoken about a bit, but it generally is that it can take employees um, you know, and people generally a, a longer time to come forward um, with sexual harassment. It can be difficult to, to bring up. Um, and you know, obviously during employment, they may not consider what had happened and it can be after the fact that employees consider um, something happened and they, and they want to raise it. So it's just giving, I guess, that, that opportunity to, to raise it um, due to the, you know, the, the difficult nature of, of, of it as it is. As an employment lawyer, do you think um, that this makes things unfair for employers at all? Do you think, because I mean, you know, someone can have a lot of retrospective feelings about their workplace. Um, what's your view on the validity of, of extending this timeline? Um, my personal view, um, I guess from a personal point and from, you know, a, a, a legal perspective is that, 90 days is not a long time. I think, um, you know, it really is only three months. And I think uh, if your employment, if you leave it or it's terminated for whatever reason you leave your employment, there's a lot going on in that 90 days regardless. You may be, you know, stressed finding a new job and things like that. Um, or, or, you know, dealing with with um, changing jobs in itself is stressful, I believe. So I think the, the, the extended time frame, it just gives um, people, you know, that time to deal with what they're going through um, if something did happen. And, and often it's not until after the fact that you think something might have been wrong. And I think in this case, um, particularly with sexual harassment, um, it can take a while. It can mean speaking to professionals before you come to a point where you you feel comfortable to raise something. So I think it, it, as with employers, um, obviously it's difficult. It adds, it adds that time frame, But I think, you know, the real issue is stamping it out in the first place and having good policies in place to make sure that it's dealt with um, appropriately. Ruby, thank you so much. No worries. Thanks, Dita. Two years ago, when NBR talked to the company behind Arepa Brain Drinks, it was doing about 2.5 million in sales and selling across New Zealand, Hong Kong and Australia. But since then, the growth has been substantial and it's just completed a capital raise. Founders Angus Brown and Zach Robinson are here to tell me all about it. Thank you for coming in. Uh, let's talk about what's happened since COVID. COVID really turbocharged this business. Yeah, the need for um, products that supported the immune system uh, obviously increased. Uh, the need for products that supported uh, mental well-being um, certainly increased. And we found ourselves at a um, at with good timing in the sense that we were earlier on our journey with building our e-commerce store, which was um, reasonably mature for you know for staff essentially at the time. And also lucky during COVID in the sense that um, you know supermarkets still stayed open. So although we lost um, hundreds of cafe suppliers, supermarkets and petrol stations were um, still open, and we were seeing an acceleration of our ranging into into those, coupled with a um, an exponential increase in in online um, sales because partly you know 
people didn't have anything else to do and they were buying stuff online. <laughs> exactly. Um, Zach, can you tell us about the online operation? Um, what kind of, are the customers different from who might buy it in a supermarket? Uh, the customers are, uh, they're kind of the same customers in some ways, but we definitely, it's the people who are buying online uh, have seen the benefit of our product and they are wanting it on a regular basis. So they are on you know, longer term subscriptions, they're wanting our other products that aren't available in the supermarkets like our capsules and our powders. So right. there's other product variability on there as well for them. But um, they are the, you know, the same customer in some ways as someone out there wanting to better, better their brain for the day. But um, they're the ones who are they're a bit more, like you say, stickier customers because they f- feel the benefits of our product. So of your total sort of um, business, how much are you doing online? So it's about 35 to 30% of oh, our business. So we're able to, over COVID, really lift that. Um, percentage and since COVID we've kind of held that percentage break as we've brought on new supermarkets and you know new customers overseas we're still able to kind of maintain that 30-35% kind of sweet spot for online which is quite high for a lot of um, FMCG FMCG businesses Um, you know it's normally like 5% of the businesses at e-com stores so Um, Angus, you have just, um, or Arepa has just done a capital raise, and that is going to build your business in Australia. What have you got to do in Australia? What are you trying to do there? Uh, win. <laughs> um, so that's essentially uh, getting our product ranged into all the key accounts from you know Woolworths, Coles, through to the petrol and convenience retailers such as you know Ampol and Seven Eleven and um, BP. Um, similar to what we've done here in New Zealand and um, we are certainly on that journey and we have had some good wins recently where um, we'd be kind of locked in another uh, four, three to four hundred new stores recently confirmed. We can't name who they are just yet because it hasn't gone live but we expect to um, uh, we're in probably about 1,200 at the moment and then we want to grow that number to about uh, 2,000, just over 2,000 stores in Australia and kind of where you would typically find, um, you know, health drinks or energy drinks or... Yeah. Yeah. And you're using Australia as a test market, aren't you? Yeah, so it's a perfect stepping stone towards much bigger markets and so we're taking a lot of learnings with um, hiring in market as well as our spend of marketing as a proportion to revenue, which has been typically a lot higher in developing markets. And then going about um, local partnerships with our science and and, and nutrition supplies to sports teams and, and clinical studies at universities. You've got some very high-profile um, shareholders and sort of advocates of the product. Um, how do you go about structuring those relationships? Oh, they kind of some come naturally to us, and then some, uh, you know, Angus and I seek out over, you know, through different means of. I think you know, Lane. We, you know, the CEO of Zespri. We reached out to him via LinkedIn. Yeah, and um, then Summer Inbound and like Stephen Adams, he was interested and then um, kind of put his hand up to say, hey, I'm available for the next investment raise. But before that, we were just supplying him as a friend. And yeah, a lot of these really you know, high-profile people are also just human beings who are stressed and, and need to, to also perform. Um, so it's been a fascinating journey supplying yeah, movie sets to... Um, some of the world's most elite athletes, um, and then been really fortunate to get um, high-quality investors who have been there, done that, like Alan Bowden, the founder of Convita, and 
uh, Lane Jagger was 10 years at Zespri, um, those type of brains are really uh, helpful because it um, lifts our gaze from thinking, you know, smaller within the context of New Zealand, Australia, and a bit of Asia, a bit of US to, you know, our goals now to be a, you know, billion dollar company out of New Zealand, completely mm. New Zealand owned. What are some of the barriers to growth that you can foresee ahead or maybe you're, you're facing them now? Yeah, some of the barriers were like, you know, is just... Ourselves. Ge- yeah, yeah, yeah. Just general supply is probably one of them. Like, mm. you know, making sure we actually, you know, we make a physical product and we have to manufacture it and we have to get it across borders and into new markets. So understanding, you know, how to do that and establishing new markets, you know, like making sure we have, you know, enough ingredients to, you know, deliver global demand has probably been something we've been working on the last 18 months and we're actually broken the back of that now where we're, we're actually in a very comfortable position on, on our kind of supply chain. But as you open up new markets, there's just, it's probably like one of the barriers, it's probably the barriers we don't even know about yet. So one of the things we have learned, um, you know, we've, uh, with our Australian team, you know, we've just hired a country manager in Australia, he starts in a couple of weeks and it's, Having people from Australia, you know, running that country as its own business is something we're learning because they understand that market. You know, we're not the experts of every market we're going to be going mm. into. You know, yeah. we say, you know, we're going to do 10 markets over the next 10 years. So it's, you know, using, you know, local knowledge to help open up those um, markets will help reduce the barriers. There will always be barriers. And it's the, like I said, the barriers we don't even know about um, yeah. It's probably one of the barriers that we do have. And capital, capital is not a barrier in the sense that we we're being very patient. Uh, we recently raised, so we're, we're all good for um, the next wee while. But we're we're pers- purposefully not raising until our science um, that we've got in the pipeline comes more to maturity with regards to publishing. Once we've kind of locked in some of that IP. Um, and we've proven out, you know, Australia, that's when we'll do a much larger significant raise to then take on the next two to three new markets. And one of them is probably most likely the US, although we're still doing that research. Is it also a difficulty in trying to meet the different um, rules around what you can say about therapeutic drinks and so forth in each country? I mean, in New Zealand, it's about to change. There's a little bit of difficulty, but that's BAU for us. We just will cater to what the regulations allow us to because we almost, because if everyone's playing on that same playing field, we don't really care because people will still feel the benefits of us unlike anything else. Well, unlike, you know, People feel the effects of caffeine and alcohol, but if they want to feel the effects of a health drink without caffeine, there's very few options, and we think we deliver that felt effect. So we almost it could we could just call ourselves Arepa or a brain drink and not have any health claims, and we'll still be okay with our business because we've got published research um, and consumer evidence to to show that we impart a quantified health effect. In five years' time, if you're sitting here, what will you be telling me about Arepa? Oh, good question. We're in a very big market and um, we're learning. We're learning. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, yeah. No, I, yeah, I'd say we'd be, yeah, we'll be in a couple more markets and, you know, we'll be experiencing new experiences of opening up, you know, different yeah. regions. And But yeah. you are looking to be a unicorn company, right? Well, eventually yeah. at some stage, for yeah. sure. Um, and we, yeah, 10 markets in 10 years is the focus. And so we would have said in five years' time, being in two years now, being in two markets now or three, we'd be in seven markets, hopefully. And we should have, we will be talking to you around that Arepa has a 
really interesting effect on um, neurotransmitters and brain health and mood and mental performance and hopefully immunity um, if all this research comes off. That's great. Angus and Zach, thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Cheers. Ads made by sustainable businesses using sustainable production practices and distributed and promoted sustainably as well. This is the vision of the Ad Net Zero campaign that's about to be launched. The Commercial Communications Council CEO Simon Lendrum is here to explain. And Simon, tell us about this campaign overseas. So Ad Net Zero is a framework that was uh, originated in the UK in late 2020 and then adopted by Ireland and uh, rolled out in the US earlier this year. Uh, and it has now global ambition uh, that every market with uh, an advertising industry um, core to it, so that's pretty much every market in the world, uh, starts to interrogate uh, its own greenhouse gas emissions footprint uh, and looks at the entire supply chain um, involved in the in the production and distribution of advertising uh, and measures that um, against greenhouse gas emissions and therefore with measurement that provides us with the opportunity to put in place reduction plans so that we can overall lower the impact uh, of the activity uh, attached to advertising, which of course uh, is highly beneficial to the business community, uh, enabling innovation, visibility of new products and services, uh, and ultimately can um, encourage positive behaviour change uh, as we try and transition to um, products and services that are lower carbon um, in their in their impact. So has the sector been a bit slow in this regard? Um, I don't think uh, I don't think it's been particularly slow, um, like many industries, in its uh, understanding of scope one and two emissions and sort of direct operational impact. Although um, you know, there's a spectrum of organisations that. Uh, some have been very active and uh, measuring and reducing for nearly a decade. Others are just starting out on the journey, and I think that would probably mirror um, in in many industries. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, though, I think uh, undoubtedly there's benefit for us all coming together, and, and the ad- advertising ecosystem is made up of agencies, their clients, the advertisers, um, the media owners who um, who provide the channels in, on which we advertise, uh, and the production industry that sits underneath it. And um, AdNet Zero is the opportunity for us all to come together, uh, put together um, using science-based measurement criteria, uh, getting a real and current understanding of those greenhouse gas emissions across the supply chain and then working together on reduction plans uh, so that we can continue to enjoy uh, the same levels of advertising uh, that we have done historically but at a lower impact. We know that the New Zealand advertising industry is quite keen on this uh, initiative and New Zealand is the fourth market globally in which it's going to be rolled out. How do we know it's not just a sort of a feel-good campaign? Um, well, I think that's a very fair question, and it's the last thing we want it to be because in, inherent in uh, some of the actions that we need to take as part of Ad Net Zero uh, 
is to develop uh, a far uh, more thorough understanding of uh, greenwashing and avoiding it and indeed avoiding ad net zero being a hollow promise as well. So every supporter that um, comes on board with ad net, ad net zero uh, is signing a commitment that they are already uh, in the process of science-based measurement uh, or that they are committing to doing so in the next 12 months. And then in year two, we'll be asking every supporter to publicly state uh, targets for the future uh, and actively um, chase reduction plans. Right. So it's it's action-oriented from the very start. And then as those supporters come on board, we'll be building working groups to identify all the areas across the um, uh, advertising supply chain where we could look for um, big ticket reduction items f um, that everyone can then uh, enjoy. So what's going to happen in early August? So we're going to officially uh, launch the program on August the 4th. Uh, and that will be an event at, um, hosted by TVNZ uh, where we will be bringing together um, representatives from across the industry because this needs participation from, from everybody um, uh, across the, the whole industry, uh, along with um, guests from, uh, from government and from sustainability um, organisations. We'll be hearing some of the uh, experiences of uh, organisations who've already been on the journey so that we can uh, share that learning uh, with those just starting out. Uh, and we'll be discussing you know, some of the, the areas of complexity that we'll be facing moving forward. So there's, there's a lot of um, data methodology, discussions to be had, particularly when it comes to areas like media planning and buying and the um, the greenhouse gas emissions uh, associated with the platforms on which advertising sits. Uh, and that's not always immediately obvious. Uh, many platforms are, are global now. Um, the, the digital servers, for example, might well be sitting in geographies with a very different electricity makeup to um, the, the yeah. renewably, renewable dominant uh, generation market that we have here. Right. So a lot of work to come. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. If you're hungry for more and want to join the discussion, head over to nbr.co.nz.